0: Good morning, Mission Church. My name is Eric McPherson, and I lead the youth ministry here at Mission Church. And it is my honor to bring the message to you this morning. But first, before I get started, children, you are dismissed. i oh, just kidding. Parents, that's totally up to you, whether you want to send your kids to the other room or have them right there with you for the message this morning. Um, but would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray that you speak through me this morning. Would anything that comes out of my mouth, that it is that it is of my mouth, be easily forgotten, Lord, But anything that is of you, would it be remembered? Lord, we open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us this morning. In your Son, Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So, we've been in a sermon series on stewardship. And this morning... We're going to read about and explore a passage that shows God as a faithful steward. This morning, church, I want to invite you to let your imaginations kick in, let them run wild a little bit. Sometimes when we read scripture, I know I do this. The first thing that I can think about while I read scripture is, what does this tell me about who God is? What does this passage of scripture mean for me? Lord, what am I supposed to learn from this? These are all great questions to ask. Sometimes, though, when I read this way, I think I can quickly look through the passage and look for the facts. Look for good one-liners from Jesus, oftentimes lots to choose from. And watch out for the people that Jesus pushes back against or questions, often the, the highly religious folk in the room. Again, these are good things to look to think about and reason through when reading scripture. Sometimes when I do this, however, I think that I only get a partial picture of what's going on in scripture. Sometimes it feels like I'm reading it, reading scripture, reading the Bible as sort of a textbook. That gives me a a two dimensional kind of flat picture of what's going on rather than the full 3D experience. When I do this, I think I forget about what it might have been like to actually be there, to experience the stories that we're seeing and reading in Scripture firsthand. So I want to encourage you this morning to let your imaginations kick in, that as we read this passage, to think about it. Try and put yourself there. Try and put yourself in the crowd. Try and put yourself in with the disciples. I'm not encouraging you to sensationalize this incredible story that we have. I'm just inviting you to fill in the gaps of details that we don't have in this story. And now, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand up. Yes, even if you're in your living room, would you join me and stand as we read from the gospel from John chapter 6 this morning? I'm going to invite my wife, Jennifer, to come read this passage for us. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15.
1: Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover, Passover festivities were near. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Church, this is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Jennifer.
1: Um,
0: In this passage, we read about Jesus doing something that we see Jesus doing often in Scripture. Jesus sees a need, and out of compassion, he helps those in need. And... Jesus goes about this one in one of the most Jesus ways possible. Jesus, being fully human, recognizes and sympathizes with those that are hungry because he has experienced a deep hunger before. In Matthew chapter 4, we hear of Jesus being hungry after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus knows what a 40-day hunger feels like. So, it's safe to assume that Jesus also knows what a one- or two-day hunger feels like. Jesus, being also fully God, could have seen all these people who were following him, seen them being hungry, and sent them home to go get food, or to go make food. Verse 2 tells us that the people who were following Jesus to the mountainside were following him because they had seen him do miracles, specifically healing sick people. So they knew that Jesus was a miracle worker. Another thing Jesus could have done, Jesus could have made food appear out of thin air if he wanted to. If I was hungry on that hill, I would have dreamed that Jesus would have just snapped his fingers, and all of a sudden there would have been an all-you-can-eat sushi buffet there for me, because that's That's my favorite food. And Jesus could have done that. But Jesus approaches this problem of hunger from a different angle. He decides to invite humans to be part of the solution to the issue of hunger. This is who God is, isn't it? God invites us to participate in his ministry of reconciling all creation to himself, even removing the hunger of others. God doesn't need us to do anything good. God doesn't need us for anything good to happen here on earth. But because God loves us, he invites us, the church, the body of Christ, to be part of the good works that God is doing in the world. One thing that I can't get away from when I read this passage that Jennifer read for us this morning is who Jesus invites to be part of the solution. Jesus first poses the question to his disciple named Philip. And the question that I ask is, well, who is Philip? Why did Jesus ask Philip this question? Was Philip just the closest one standing to Jesus when Jesus thought about the hunger of the people? That could have been the case. But we know from John chapter 1 verse 44 that Philip was from a town, from the town of Bethsaida, a town in Galilee. Scholars believe that this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people took place in a very similar area to where Philip grew up. So that means that Philip would have been one of the resident experts of this location. So it makes sense why Jesus would have turned to Philip to ask, hey, where can we get some bread? Jesus asks Philip where they can buy bread for all these people. Now, Philip thinking like a logical human, suggests that it would be challenging to purchase enough bread to feed 5,000 people. It would be quite expensive. In the NIV, we have the explanation of, we have Philip saying that it would take half a year's wages to buy enough bread to feed all these people. But in the original language, Philip gives an exact number, 200 denarii. To me, Philip's answer is significant. It says that he thought about it a little bit, that he would have looked out, seen the crowd, and made a guess, made an estimate, but not just a random figure. He was like, thinking about it a little bit. I feel for Philip. I can't help but think that Jesus knew exactly what Philip would say. I mean, Jesus literally spoon-fed him the suggestion of how they could feed all these people. The thing was, Jesus wasn't worried about the cost or how they would pay for the bread. Jesus just asked where they could find some bread. Jesus asked Philip to test him, and I think Philip probably didn't score too well on this test. Philip's response makes me think that internally he was like, "Yo, Jesus, I think you're asking the wrong question. Jesus, You see, Jesus asked Philip the question of where. But Philip decided to try and answer the question of how. Philip got ahead of Jesus. Philip saw the problem. He didn't see the answer to the question that Jesus had for him. Philip was one of the disciples from this area. If he didn't know any local places to get bread, he could have asked Andrew or Peter, who were disciples that were also from the same area, if they do any places to get bread. But instead, he thinks, Jesus, the cost is just too high. We'll never be able to buy this much bread. Do we ever try to answer the wrong question? Jesus asks us a question. The Holy Spirit convicts us and asks us a question. They ask us the question of where. And instead of answering where, we get so caught up in the details We get so caught up in the how. How is this going to work? That we don't answer the question of where. If Jesus asks the question where, we don't have to worry about the how yet. He'll take care of it. As followers of Jesus, we're called to hang on to every word that he says. We can trust him. If he calls us, To where? We don't have to worry about the how. So either Jesus asked this question loud enough that all of the disciples could hear it, or those around him, or Jesus or Philip decided to start asking other disciples this question of, where can we get enough bread? And so then, this disciple named Andrew comes on the scene. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he speaks up. And so who's Andrew? Well, Andrew's from the same town as Philip. Before Andrew was a disciple of Jesus, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. Andrew brought his brother Simon Peter with him to follow Jesus. And back in John 1, Andrew even recognizes that Jesus is Messiah. Andrew answers Jesus' question. He doesn't necessarily think he has a great answer or even a complete answer, but he has an answer. Andrew says that there is a boy with five small barley loaves of bread and two fish. Andrew doesn't have the full answer, but he has something. He contributes to the start of answering Jesus' question about where to find some bread. You see, Philip was focused on the The how. The how are we going to get there? How are we going to get this done? But Andrew heard the question and provided part of a solution. Andrew sees that the call is to follow Jesus even if we don't feel like we have enough, but to trust Jesus to turn it into enough. Andrew doesn't actually have any bread. He just knows of a boy that has some. This unnamed boy that we have in Scripture offers what he has to Jesus. Jesus takes the five small barley loaves of bread and two fish that this boy is willing to give. He gives thanks to the Lord and distributes the food to the people on the mountainside. And we know from this passage in John 6, as well as other recordings and the other three gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, that there was plenty of bread and fish to go around. Jesus turned those five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 plus people. And there were leftovers. There were 12 basketfuls of red leftover after everybody had had their fill. Hmm. We don't know from scripture what this eating time looked like, but I'm really curious. Was Jesus up there preaching? Was the crowd silently listening to him? Or was it a little bit chaotic as 5,000 people were trying to get passed out food Was it more like a party than chaos? Were people celebrating and having a good time, as often happens when there's lots of food around? Hmm. Was everybody quiet and just listening, hanging on to every word that Jesus said as they silently passed food and made sure that they had enough and made sure that their neighbor had enough? All we know is that Jesus took these five small barley loaves of bread and two fish from this unnamed boy and fed 5,000 people. And so my question for us this morning is who was a faithful steward in this passage? Obviously the unnamed boy, right? He gave all that he had to Jesus. He didn't have that much, but he gave it all. And Jesus multiplied what he had to feed 5,000 plus people with it. What does this story tell us about faithful stewardship? Who else in the story had opportunities to be faithful stewards, and how did they do? First, we have the crowd. They faithfully followed Jesus. They saw that he had been doing miracles, that he'd been healing people, and they followed him maybe even slightly irresponsibly. They didn't think to bring enough food for the journey. They just said, that Jesus guy's doing miracles. We should follow. I wonder what's going to happen. And we know from the end of the story that most of the crowd doesn't get it. They try and make Jesus his king, and he's like, no, that's not me. And so he runs away, gets away from him. But the crowd, in the beginning, faithful with the knowledge that they had of, who is this Jesus guy? And they followed. And then there's Philip, the disciple that Jesus asked the question of, where can we get enough bread to feed these people? It doesn't necessarily sound that Philip was full of faith. He was bogged down by the the practical realities of the not having enough money to pay for food. And couldn't see past that, that maybe Jesus would do another miracle here. Andrew had enough faith to at least attempt to answer the question that Jesus was asking. To see the boy, to see the possibility of, I don't know what Jesus is going to do, but Jesus, you asked for some bread. We've got five small loaves. And then there's the boy. The unnamed boy was so faithful With what he had. A faithful steward of these five small loaves of barley bread and two fishes. He offered them to Jesus, and Jesus did the miraculous of feeding five thousand plus people with just this small what might have been his lunch. And then there's Jesus, God in human flesh. He's faithful to his followers doesn't allow them to go away hungry. So there are three ideas that I want to share with you this morning about faithful stewardship. First, being a faithful steward is not complicated. The act of faithful stewardship is not complicated. In theory, it's actually quite simple. We offer everything that we are and everything that we have to God. Trusting that God can use it in greater ways than we alone can use it. Trusting that God will use what we offer to further his heavenly work done here on earth. For the crowd, their call was to follow Jesus. And they did it. For Philip, it was simply to answer the question, not try to solve the entire problem. Andrew answered the question. And the unnamed boy said, this is what I have. It's not much, but you can use it. Being a faithful steward is not complicated. Being a faithful steward is also for everyone. No matter how much or how little we think that we have to offer to God, we are all called to give to God. As we belong not to ourselves, but to God and to each other. First Corinthians 6 tells us that you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Romans 12 verses 4 through 8 tells us, If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We all have different giftings and abilities. But none of these abilities are greater than any other. God says, no matter which ability I have blessed you with, no matter which talents you have grown Give them to me. I can do incredibly more with them than you can do by yourself. Even if you don't feel like your abilities, your giftings are enough, in God, they are. I want to tell you just a quick story about one time that I did not feel like enough. But God called me to give of myself and I answered, and God worked in amazing ways. When I was 24 years old, so two years after I graduated college, I had the opportunity to lead a Love Works trip at Point Loma Nazarene University. The Love Works program, every year, some of you listening have participated, and you'll all agree with me, it's awesome. Um, it's a program where every year Point Loma sends short-term mission trips, uh, mission teams full of college students, and volunteer leaders to missionaries and to pastors around the globe who have asked for a team to come and help them with ministry for up to from one week to three weeks. And I had the chance to go on a trip as a student my senior year of college. I got to go to Eastern Europe and do work with some missionaries in Eastern Europe. It was amazing, an incredible experience. And one thing that I knew and learned from coming back to that was that God was calling me to lead a trip as soon as I could. And you're allowed to apply to lead a trip a year and a half after you graduate. So I graduated at 22. At 23 and a half, I'm applying to be the leader of a mission trip, taking college students to another country where I don't know the language, I don't know the cultural context, I don't even really know what's going on, other than the Lord has called me and trusted, and calls me to trust Him in this call, trusting that he will do even greater works than I could do by myself. Hmm. That time leading up to saying yes to God, well, actually, after I had said yes, sent in my application, was a, uh uh-oh, what did I do? (laughs) I am not prepared for this. How can I, a 24-year-old, take 10 college students to another country with another 20-something co-leader? Like, Lord, you're going to trust us with this? And that time leading up to that trip, I think I spent more time in prayer than I ever have in a six-month span of my life just because I was so nervous. I did not feel qualified. I did not feel prepared. But I knew I was called. And I'm so thankful that I said yes to answer that call. It was an amazing trip, and the Lord worked in amazing ways in my life. Open my eyes to what ministry looks like. Open my eyes to the incredible globalness of the church. The amazing work that has been doing, that is being done around the world. That we're not just alone here, even though it can feel like that sometimes. I'm so thankful that I said yes to that opportunity. And I want to let you know that there have been times where I've said no also. Come ask me and I'll tell you some of those. But So don't feel alone if, you're, if you've ever heard a call to do something. To offer something faithfully to God. And you shy away from it. I've been there too. But we are all blessed and have all have much to offer to God. Not because we are great, but because God is great. And can do mighty things through us. So being a faithful steward is not complicated. Being a faithful steward is for everyone. And finally, being a faithful steward is an act of worship to God. Romans 12 verse 1 tells us, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, urges the church in view of God's mercy to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Being a faithful steward of our lives is to offer all that we have, and more importantly, all that we are, to God. If we offer all that we are to God, then offering all that we have to God comes naturally. I am married. I've been married to my wife, Jennifer, who read scripture for us earlier for just over a year. And I know that in marriage, the call is to give all of myself to her and the call for her is to give all of herself to me. Now, we don't do this perfectly, but we try our best and I think we do a pretty good job of it. Now in this offering all that I am and all that I have to my wife, she does not take advantage of it. She doesn't take everything from me, even though she has access to all of it. Though She does often take those prized, old, comfortable sweatshirts and T-shirts. As we spend more time with God, growing in our relationship with God, we are transformed into becoming more and more like Christ. Christ offered everything that he had for us, even his life. Because that's what God does for us. To be like Christ is to offer everything that we have to God. That is how we truly worship God. We offer all that we are and all that we have to him who is greater than we can ever imagine in the hopes that he will do things that are greater than we could ever imagine through what we offer. Church, Have you ever had the chance to do something that you didn't think was possible? But God called you to do it anyways? Have you ever had an experience like that before? I want to invite you to take a moment and remember a time that God invited you to something that you felt unqualified for. To something that, in that unqualification you faithfully said yes. And God did more than you have ever expected to happen. I want you to remember that. And if you've not had an experience like that yet, that's okay too. God wants to use you and your life to further the kingdom of heaven here on earth. I want to challenge you all of you, all of us, to be on the lookout for what God is up to and where God is at work. Offering all that we have to God and watching to see what he does with it. Because it's not about what we can do. It's about what God can do. So what I've hoped to share with you this morning is that the act of faithful stewardship is not complicated. It's easy. We offer everything we are and everything we have to God to use to further the heavenly work being done here on earth. Hmm. And this faithful stewardship is not just for those who feel they are enough or have enough to give. It's our call to the church, to everyone. Everyone. knowing that when we give all that we have to God, God smiles down on us and does amazing things that we never could have imagined and never could have dreamed of accomplishing on our own. This is our true act of worship to God, to be faithful stewards of all that God has blessed us with. Thank you.